0: Well, my name is Bill White. I'm pleasure, it is my pleasure to welcome you as we gather once again as the Christ Journey family, not only here in Coral Gables and Kendall Campus, but across the nation and around the world, wherever you're making your connection with us today through Church Online, we welcome you. Now, our series is... The Making of a Man, and ladies, sisters, that's not to leave you out. It's to say that what we would love to be about is building and being the kind of men that bring blessing and strength into the lives of those around us. So please join us as we make that our prayer today. Today's title is Breaking Through the Bad. And my contention, as I believe we see in the story of Joseph's life, is that um, there is no making of a man Without a breaking of the bad. There is no making of a man without a breaking of the bad. Am I right? And, uh, you know, as a man, as to be alive is to experience bad. To our friends in Guatemala and Nicaragua and Venezuela who are in the unleashing of different kinds of bad situations right now, we are praying God's blessing. But it happens to you too, doesn't it? Bad stuff happens in a man's life, to a man's life. It happens to me. Uh, Stuff that gives rise to anger. Like if I feel disrespected, it makes me angry. Is that how it is with you guys? If somebody that I care about is abused or injured or treated unfairly, it makes me angry. Then what do you do with the bad stuff that gives rise to anger? We've all got it. And I'm thinking two options come immediately to mind for me. The first one is revenge. You know, get your pound of flesh. Get even as quickly as possible, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You love that Bible verse when it comes to revenge time. Revenge means this, to inflict some harm on someone for a wrong suffered at their hand. And you know, even Jesus' disciples, James and John, they were leaving a village one day that had rejected Jesus and they said, hey Jesus, you want us just to call down some lightning and incinerate them? I mean, that's revenge. payback for uh, stiff-arming Jesus. And in fact, they weren't uh, surely they weren't the first, they weren't the last. This is the theme of many male-action movies. If you notice, it sells a lot of popcorn. It's um, Swiss, swift retribution to violators. Vigilante justice. Batman is all over this. Spider-Man has revenge as a theme many times. A lot of superheroes are motivated by the desire to avenge a wrong, either the death of a loved one or some helpless, some injustice has been done and so they swing in to action to get retribution. Movies, and think back through the movies real quickly. Count of Monte Cristo, Gladiator, Braveheart, Revenant, Kill Bill, Godfather, Gran Torino, Unforgiven, Taken, True Grit, Time to Kill, Payback, Princess Bride, even Princess Bride. Send there, my name Indigo Montoya. You kill my father. <laughs> Prepare to die. That's right. Revenge. Option number one. Option number two retreat. Retreat means withdraw from enemy forces. Run. Get out of harm's way. Get out of the line of fire. You know, create some distance. Keep your distance. Hide. Now, we don't like guys we don't like to talk about hiding. We don't hide. You know what we do? We get busy. We get, we go to work. So you know where guys like to hide without, call it hiding. And if you don't do this, then I'm not talking about you, am I? But if you happen to do it, you get busier and busier and you pour yourself into your work because of some situation that has happened somewhere and you're really not fighting it. You know what you're doing? You're avoiding it. You're running from it. That's retreat. That's option number two. When something bad happens, you want to get out of harm's way, you want to stay away from the people that caused you pain, you try to stuff the pain, you try to stuff the anger, and you do stuff that helps you feel better, that's retreat. Pour yourself into your work. Or drown it in alcohol and drugs. That's where a lot of those country western songs come from, right? Where a guy's saying, i got to spend some time with Jose Cuervo. (laughs) Or Jack Daniels. You know, they're not talking about, you know what they're talking about or Wasting Away Again in Margaritaville. You know, that song is about retreat. Listen to the lyrics. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to get out of harm's way, and I don't want to face the truth about it. One of my favorite country western titles, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. (laughs) Just checking to see if anybody's paying attention out there. Bud Welch's daughter, but we try to drown the pain and self-medicate. It's a form of retreating. Bud Welch's daughter, Julie, was one of 167 that were killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And he was so enraged with grief over the, the injustice of her death. He, he didn't want a trial for McVeigh and Nichols. You know what he wanted? In his own words, I want them fried. First impulse, revenge. And then he had such a hard time dealing with his loss that he said he would go home and just drink and drink and drink, try to fall asleep. Alcohol and abuse, alcohol abuse and smoking three packs of cigarettes a day became normal for him, he said. That's the second impulse. Retreat into some kind of self-medication. About 10 months after Julie's death, he said he was at the bomb site. He had a habit of going there because that's the last place she was alive. And he went there and uh, he was reflecting upon his grief. He was just trying to figure out, how can I get past my grief? And he concluded that he was being consumed by the same rage and revenge that had led McVeigh and Nichols to blow up the building where his daughter was that day. And he said, I realized that uh, it was out of rage and retribution that Julie had died and many fine people with her. And then he said, I realized I didn't want to let my rage and my revenge get out of control. And then he said, I realized that, you know what? McVeigh's execution wasn't going to bring anyone real peace of mind. In fact, two years after McVeigh was executed, Visiting with many of the families who had lost loved ones, he asked them, and uh, did they have a sense of closure now that McVeigh was dead? And here's what he said, I haven't heard one family say they feel better now that McVeigh is dead. In fact, he said, some of them said, no, it was too quick and it was too easy. So there wasn't resolution. So what do you do? You know, (laughs) Hurting others may bring a sense of temporary satisfaction, but it doesn't heal the pain. It doesn't bring peace to the heart. And hiding in a bottle or working yourself you know, into numbness, that doesn't resolve it. Stuffing the suffering in hopes that it just goes away. But when it doesn't go away, what do you do? Okay, so revenge doesn't work. Retreat doesn't work. What do you do? Well, this is the third option that Joseph brings us to today. Maybe it's an option for you. Joseph's story models this option. But before I name it, I I really want to remind you that Joseph's had a lot of bad in his life. He's got plenty of reason to be angry. And from the time he was a kid, every age and stage of his masculine journey. We looked at the stages of a masculine journey. Let me remind you of them. In his boyhood, he was uh, treated as a favored son that sparked jealousy among his brothers. In his cowboy years as an adolescent young man and young adult, his arrogance really eked his brothers to the point that they sold him out, sold him off. And during his warrior stage, that young adult time period and the bulk of his young adulthood, he was in Potiphar's house fighting through Pharaoh's dungeon as a slave and as a prisoner. And then during that time, we also see the track of love come into his life. So as a lover, he decides to protect purity, to guard marriage, and to love God as his first love, which at no small cost, by the way, because doing the right thing landed him in a prison. And uh, now... He's stepping into what uh, John Eldridge calls his king stage of masculinity, where he's in his power now. He's prime minister of Egypt. He's, he's not, um, and yet in every one of these scenarios, we don't see him vengefully taking his pound of flesh. We don't see him withdrawing or avoiding conflict. Instead, here's the word, he acts to redeem it Redeem means make something that's bad better and more acceptable. And there's one verse in the New Testament that really fits Joseph in my thinking. It's Romans 12, 21. It says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's redeeming the situation. And we see Joseph doing it in chapters 42, 43, 44, and 45 in Genesis. Part of the story that we're looking at today. Now, now that Joseph is in his power, now that he is a man with an authority role, What kind of man is he going to be? What's he going to do with this power? What would you do? And as happens to men at this stage, guess what? His past walks back in to his present. He's about 38 years old. This is kind of a... uh, a midlife opportunity really presents itself. His past, all the stuff from back there is now suddenly present right here and the famine has made people desperate. The surrounding nations are turning to Egypt for food and one of those nations is Canaan, the people of Jacob, his father. The family tree lives in Canaan and he hasn't seen them for 21 years. 21 years. And the last day he saw them was when his brothers kidnapped him, stripped him of his fancy clothes, threw him in a well, and then sold him as a slave to a passing caravan. 21 years ago, that has happened. And now for 21 years, Joseph has had the opportunity to think, if I ever had the chance, what would I do? If I see him again, If that opportunity ever came, what would I do? Now, 21 years, Jacob, his father, has been grieving, refusing to be comforted, like Mr. Welch, who had lost his daughter. 21 years. Have you ever lived up close to somebody who's angry at their loss? 21 years it's been going on. And now it's the second year of the famine. His brothers need food. So Father Jacob sends him to Egypt to get some. Now, what are they thinking on the trip? It's a 22-day trip, one way. What are they talking about? Well, we know what Daddy was thinking before he sent him because he said, you know, you 10 guys are going, but not Benjamin. Joe's little brother's not leaving. You know, he's all I got left of Rachel and my son, Joseph. So he's not going with you. So dad's fear and dad's grief is still very present. In fact, he's brought it right up there where they can all see it. So what are they talking about? I guarantee you one of the things they're talking about is what they did to, the, to their brother because you know they've been keeping that secret for a long time. Their guilt, their shame, their regret, and now there it is. And maybe, maybe they're wondering on that trip, you know, I wonder if he's still alive, you think? Hey, if he is, what are we gonna do if we see him? And that could, that could be awkward, well, as it turns out, all food requests in Egypt go through Joseph. Verse six, Joseph was now governor of the land and he was the one who sold grain to all the people. And when they come up to get their grain, to buy grain, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Now I imagine it's because he looks a little bit differently than he did as a 17 year old. And a 17 year old Hebrew who is now dressed like a 38 year old Egyptian prime minister. And they, the last place they would expect to. See him would be like that, but he recognizes them. Verse 6 says, When Joseph's brothers arrive, they bow down to him with their faces to the ground. This was Joseph's childhood dream coming true, right? But Joseph instead accuses them of spying. I know what you really want. You're shepherds and you're looking for places, ways to get into our land where it's unprotected so your sheep can be grazing in our nation's land, you're spies. The brothers say, no, no, we're not spies. We're here to buy food. I mean, in fact, we're all brothers of the same man. There were 12 of us brothers, and the youngest has stayed home with his father, and the other one, he is no more. And, oh, wait a minute. There it is, isn't it? There's the secret again. Just squeezing right up for everybody to see. Joseph says, no, you're spies, I know. I know. And if you want to prove you're not, here's the test. I want you to go get your little brother, bring that youngest brother back, and the other nine of you, I'm going to keep you here in prison until they get back. In fact, while you're thinking about that, let's just put you in prison right now. So he locks them up for three days. On the third day, he gets them back out, and instead he says this, you know, if you're honest men, then let one of your brothers stay. Pick one to stay in prison while the rest take food back to your family. And, but you have to bring your youngest brother back to me to prove that you are trustworthy. You know what's going on here. Joseph is testing the waters. He's trying to find out. He doesn't know the character of their heart. He hadn't seen him in 21 years. And now before he reveals himself to him, he's trying to do a little checkup here, right? The brothers, what are they thinking? They're thinking, hey, the past is catching up to us. Knew it was going to happen sooner or later. It's time to pay. Time to pay. And Joseph's having a hard time the whole thing, controlling his emotions. Says he really has to fight them back through the story. But then he has Simeon, the second oldest brother, bound before their eyes and taken off to prison, and he packs the rest of them up with enough food, fills their grain, their their bags with grain for them to take home, but also has secretly planned that the silver they purchased it with is now hidden in the grain in the sacks. Well, they get home to Daddy Jacob, they tell the story, and uh, they open their grain, and they discover that their silver is still there, it freaks them out. They also tell, then they tell Daddy Jacob about the man who told them that if they come back, they've got to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, so he'll know they're not spies, but they're honest men. And you know what Jacob says to that? No way. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Verse 38, I've already lost your brother, Joseph, and I will not lose him. And so as chapter 43 opens up, guess what? The family's eaten through all the food. The cupboard's bare now. They got to send them back to Egypt to get more food. Daddy says, go on back to Egypt, or Poppy, or father, or whatever you call. You know, Father Jacob sends him back to Egypt, gets some more food. And at that point, Judah, one of the other brothers, stands up and says, hey, remember, dad, uh, the man told us, don't come back unless your brother is with you, your youngest brother. And so after lengthy discussions and explanations that were very hard about the man, the man who questioned them about their father, the man who probed them about their brother, uh, the one who's now holding Simeon until they return, <laughs> Jacob, with a heavy heart, relents and, uh, and says, okay. And he loads them up with gifts and with money, and he, he sends them to go see The man. Verse 14, may God Almighty, that in Hebrew, that's El Shaddai, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Now, when they get back to Egypt, what's going on? Well, guess what happens? That's, that's, uh, 22-day one-way trip. Remember now, 22 days, they've been thinking about what's going to happen when we get there. And remember, we got that silver, and what's going to happen? They get back there, and Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, but now prime minister puts on a big feed for them, throws a banquet. And now they're really scared because they're thinking, you know what, he's going to fatten us up before he lowers the boom. Because that was a practice at the time. He's going to get payback for the silver in our sacks. And he's going to take our donkeys. They're going to take all our stuff. They got this fear and suspicion clouding their view, don't they? And Joseph somehow maybe overhears it, picks it up. He says, you know, don't be afraid. Elohim, your God, uses a Hebrew name for God. Elohim, your God, is going to give, has given you the silver, so you don't even be afraid about that. And then he brings Simeon back out, one of their brothers. And then he, they present their gifts. And guess what? They bow down, face down, in front of him. Second time. Verse twenty-six. Then he asks them about their father. And about that time, he sees Benjamin, his little brother. He says, "Is this your youngest brother?" And it's too much for him. You know, as he blesses him, he can't hold back the tears. And he has to excuse himself and go regain his composure in another room. I think the other brother's probably saying, what's with him? You know, what's going on? I don't know. But then he comes back after he's cleaned his face, comes back. And Joseph sees to it that on the table before them at the banquet, that Benjamin gets five times as much food as the other brothers. It's a test, isn't it? It's a test of jealousy and cruelty. Are they still going to be picking on the little guy who's shown favor? Have the brothers' hearts changed? Or are they still jealous? And then the next day, all their sacks are filled with food, with grain, as much as they could carry and sent on their way back to go back home that 22-day journey again. And just as they're getting outside of town, the steward comes out from the prime minister and says, hey, hold up. Why would you repay such good with evil? What are you talking about? Oh, you stole my master's silver cup. No way. If you find it in our stuff, whoever has it's going to die. And the rest of us will be your slave. The steward says, no, whoever has it will be my slave. And the rest of you can go free. So they empty their bags and uh, it's in Benjamin's stuff. Oh no! You know, they rip their clothes. When we're grieving, we usually dress in black, you know. But for them, they they rip their clothes in grievous rage and sorrow and and they're going crazy with grief. And when Jodah, I mean Judah and his brothers get back before the man in Egypt, it says they they throw themselves on the ground before him, face down. This is the third di- time if you're counting. It's a childhood dream that Joseph had, right? And Judah says, we'll all become your slave. I mean, Joe, Joe says, no, no, just the one who had, who had my stuff. And Judah, I mean, he's just pouring his heart out. He can't handle it anymore either. He said, I've got to tell you about my father, about his grief, about his misery all these years. It's like it's all coming up and how dad's life, my dad's life is bound up in the life of this child. And if we go back and he's not with us, he's going to die. And then Judah says this, verse 33, please, please let me stay here as your slave in his place. Let me be the substitute in his place, Lion of Judah, and let him go back home to his father. It's the test of character. Three tests. The test of truth and trustworthiness. The test of jealousy and brotherhood. The test of character and sacrifice for the sake of the father. And Joseph believes now that he's seen these tests, he believes his brothers have passed all the tests. He can hold it back no longer. I mean, he, he does the big reveal, you know, and he's just, he's sobbing. In front. He breaks down in front of them. He reveals it's me, Joseph. And his sobbing is so loud that it says the Egyptians hear him and tell Pharaoh's house about it what's going on? Well, I'll tell you one thing is that the pain of betrayal and treachery goes really deep, doesn't it? Maybe some of that depth was now finally surfacing after 21 years. Maybe the erosion of trust was giving rise to some of the pain. Maybe the presence of fear and suspicion was finding voice. And yet, through all of that, this is so amazing, Joseph doesn't yield to the impulse of revenge. There's no volcanic anger spewing lava on everybody in range. Joseph doesn't avoid the pain and withdraw in retreat and let resentment poison the well of of the relationships of those around him. You know what he does? He models for us how to redeem it. Can you imagine? Now I'm hoping you can because that's where I need to go next. Because this isn't really about Joseph, guys. This is about you, this is about us. What are you doing with the pain? What are you doing with the bad stuff? What are you doing with the sense of injustice? What are you doing? Are you vomiting it out in anger? Are you stuffing it down in retreat? What about the things that you've said this? You know, I will never, I will never forgive. What about that? What about, I will, our relationship will never be the same. What about the stuff you really don't want to talk about, which is why you don't talk about it? that you'd rather keep buried, that you'd rather keep hidden under a veneer of success because, you know, I don't know what I would say. I don't know how I would act. I don't know what would happen. So we just stuff it down there. See, listen, behind all of this is my contention that there is no making of a man. Why does this matter? Because there is no making of a man without breaking through the bad. Not really. The making of a man The true making of a man involves more than revenge or passive aggression, its cousin, gentler but still as damaging. The true making of a man (laughs) is about more than simply learning how to hide well in your work, or in a bottle, or some kind of avoidant retreat. No, the true making of a man. True men are made when they step into their power and they face their fear, they face their scars, they face their nightmare, they face their ghost. So what's happening in this man's life? And how does he do it? Well, he does it with tough love, with gracious accountability, and then with the opportunity of forgiveness the opportunity for restoration that only forgiveness can give. There is no future without forgiveness, which is a whole other talk, not this one. But how did Joseph do it? And you know, the more important question is, how can you do it? That's what we're really talking about. We're talking about the making of a man and how we get beyond revenge that doesn't work and beyond retreat that doesn't work and into redeeming that seems to, whoa, And if that's what it takes to really be made into a man, what is it I must do? Well, there are three things I want to suggest. I must first do careful reflection. 21 years Joseph has had to think through his pain. So maybe the first thing you need to do is give yourself a little time. You don't just turn the page on this one. You know, depending on the depth of the pain, careful reflection is required. He had time for two decades to reflect on the abuse and his loss. And yet, look at this. He doesn't use that time to nurse a grudge. He doesn't use it to plot revenge. He uses it to lean on his God. In all the stories of his life, we find Joseph leaning on his God and then doing his best and bringing positivity into a negative situation. And he sorted out what matters in his life. This is what was happening. Have you done that? What would I do What would I say if I ever had the chance? And it looks like, here's what Joseph concluded, I'd get my family back. You know, that's what I really want. I'd try to get my family back. I wanna see my dad again. I wanna see my little brother again. You know, that really means more to me than holding on to my anger or than letting vengeance have me. Have you done more with your pain than nurse a grudge? Then rehearse the grievance. Have you discovered yet, brothers, that, um, that there is a priority in God that is greater than the injustice that you've suffered? I think that's where Joseph is landing. Then start there. And you know what? It's gonna take some time and it's gonna involve some careful reflection. Don't dodge it, but decide, I'll go there. Second, I must do thoughtful preparation. Hey, you know what? This story doesn't just happen, does it? No, this is like a mission impossible strategy plan. Man, there's stuff that has to be done. It's, it's all planned out. Stuff has to be done at this time by that person in this way. And then you got to say this, and then this is going to happen, and then I'm going to come in like this. I mean, he's got a plan together. This is taking some thoughtful preparation with assignments for self-discipline, for self-control, for follow-up required. He's going to test the waters through three specific tests. And in those tests, he's going to pay attention to see, can I trust them? Can I dare take? There's no rush to judgment here. He'd already suffered that didn't get a chance to have his say, thrown in prison. So he's not going to do that. He knows that doesn't work. So I'm not going to do something that doesn't work. But he also knows avoidance doesn't work. So every time you see Joseph in his story have an opportunity to speak truth, that's what he does. He goes to the dangerous place with truth. Careful reflection, thoughtful preparation. And then the third step is I, I take risk. I do risk within boundaries. Joseph steps within his power, steps up in power and uses it for forgiveness toward reconciliation. He redeems an unspeakably cruel childhood. He was robbed of his young adult life. He hasn't been with his family all those years. And now, guess what? The ones responsible are face down in front of him. Isn't this the time that you should just like lower the blade? How many times did he imagine that moment, and now here his dream is coming true. What, what, would, what do I feel? What do I say? What do I do? And, and actually, it tells us he's overcome. He's so caught up in a greater reality than his childhood dream. He's caught up in a greater value than what he thought would be worth so much to him. And now he's actually got a greater vision that has come to him from God in the making of a man. Of character. Here's a man of character seeking to bless his family. Do you see that? Can you see that? The real resolution of grief and anger, according to Joseph and his brothers and his fathers and his family's anger, comes when he, as the one offended, offers redeeming grace and forbearance and forgiveness. And he steps into the danger zone without any guarantee except the presence and the promise of God that has carried him through the other pain of his life. That's character. That's the making of a man. Breaking through the bad isn't a matter, listen, it isn't a matter of having your dreams come true. The making of a man isn't a matter of having your dreams come true. The making of a man isn't a matter of having, getting justice done for all the pain and stuff you've been through. The making of a man isn't about having your family together in one place. Though that's the sweet thing when it can happen. You know what the making of a man is about? It's the kind of man you're becoming in the midst of all that other stuff. And it's no accident that in each of these chapters, you know, there are two words that Joseph has called. You know what they are? The man. I think we've probably all got somebody in our life that we would refer to as the man. Do you? Hey guys, I'm thinking that you're probably the man for somebody in your life. That the authority and power that you bring weighs upon them. And at some point you're the man. And here's the question, in your power, what kind of man are you? Are you the kind of man who has to hurt somebody else because you've been hurt? Are you the kind of man who has to run away because you don't know how to deal with it? Or can we learn how to rise up, to man up, and say, God, show me. I read a story in Reader's Digest about a man who, um, true story about a man who took his eight-year-old son to a graveside service of a friend, family friend, and um, after the graveside was done, all the grandchildren and Bob's wife, that was the deceased's wife's uh, husband, they handed out golf balls to everybody to drop in the casket at the graveside, you know, instead of flowers, because Bob was an avid golfer, and they thought, you know, this will be fun, and so people were telling jokes and laughing about it. And dad says, when we finally finished dropping all the balls over the casket, our little son, our eight-year-old, said in his outside voice, hey, mom, it's a good thing your friend wasn't a bowler. You want to know what they're going to be saying about you at your graveside? You're already preaching your own funeral right now. You're already doing it. You want to know how they're going to mark the impact that you're having? It's already happening. in the choices that you are now making about the only life you have, How did Joseph do it then? I mean, I wanna have impact. I wanna bring blessing. I wanna share strength. How do you do it? Well, throughout the story, you'll see this text the Lord was with him. Yeah, and you know what? Every time Joseph was saying right back, and I'm with you. (laughs) Oh, I'm with you, Joseph. Yep, and I'm with you, Father. So that's really the question. God is already with you. Are you with him? That's the question. Step into his presence and commit to go with him in his way. That's the only way we're going to learn how to get beyond these things. Joseph stayed active. He stayed positive in his faith. Did you notice he never got an I'm sorry from his brothers? They never said, oops, our bad. They never, if you're waiting for an apology from somebody before you extend the offer of release and forgiveness then you're following a different pattern than Joseph did to get beyond his bad. Joseph used thoughtful reflection, careful preparation, and then he took the risk within boundaries. And what he discovered was that the making of a man isn't so much about your dreams coming true, it's about your character shining through. May God bless that to our lives, brothers. Lord, it's one thing to to talk about this. It's another thing to do it. So I need your help. We need your help, but we're so grateful that you are with us. So right now, we want to say, and we're with you, Lord. Is that your prayer, brother, son, father, brother, nephew, grandfather? The Lord is with you, and I'm with you, Lord. Maybe that's the place you start. I'm with you, Lord. And then you bring your pain. And then you bring the injustice. And then you bring the betrayal and the treachery and the hurt. And then you bring the words that you've spoken that have hurt others. And then you bring the fear that has kept you running the other way and trying to dodge instead of deal with breaking through the bat. Lord Jesus, we thank you that on the cross you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we pray that the mercy, the kindness of your mercy would flood every wounded place in every brother's soul today. And we lean your way, Lord, for that healing right now. And perhaps for somebody, maybe you, this is the first day of your new life in Christ. And you'd like to begin a life of peace and joy and pushing through the bad. It can all start with a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your salvation, with your spirit. And now lead me to become the man you would have me be as I turn from my way to follow your way. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, As our heads are still bowed for a moment longer i'd like to invite you to raise your hand if you would let me ask god's blessing upon the next steps of faith that you take would you just raise your hand and keep it holding for a moment so i can look around the room if you're joining us online there's an orange banner there that you can click thank you sir to my right i see you by by the aisle amen and then toward my far right again right there in the middle and toward the back god bless you thank you guys God is with us, and we're saying, and Lord, we're with you. Lord, for these brothers who have, by uplifting their hands, have said, my heart is open, we pray that you would assure them of your Spirit's presence, according to your promise, and that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In your name we pray, amen.